matchmaker. Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. I'm Matt. I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. Here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it. And sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it. But this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, Matt had two new albums to talk through, and I made my choice for the subtitles album list. Now in part two, I have two new movies to discuss, and Matt will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movie list. Sometimes I'll have listened to the albums, sometimes he'll have seen the movies, but at the end of the day, what matters is how well we sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. Once we have finished these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with these new lists we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is The Deer Hunter, Michael Cimino's 1978 movie about uh, some friends from a western Pennsylvania steel town who go to Vietnam. Yes, I can see Mr... Well, kind of Western Pennsylvania E over there doing uh, the raccoon dance. Honestly, literally more on the east side, but because I'm from the middle, uh, north central, I identify with all parts of Pennsylvania, and I'm just happy when it's in a film. So this is this is a good place to do the question that I unfairly surprised Matt with right before we did our quick break between recording. Um, so I asked him to to tell me about the three scenes from this movie that he likes the most, stand out the most to him, however he wants to interpret that. Um, so I'm curious, what's your, what's your number one? What's the, what's the big one? Oh, I didn't know I had to put him in order to, uh, let me do that real quick. Also, did the monster wake up right as you started? He did. He did wake up right as, as, as I started. And I don't know where he is right now. And I'm not going to worry about it because <laughs> he, he like, this is this is fun, just spitballing while Matt ranks these. But he like went under the desk where I I do this, and then appears to have just vanished. So either he's waiting to kill me in twenty minutes, or he's gonna go bother someone else. Um, I think if he can't get food from someone else, he's gonna come kill you. But <laughs> anyway, um, I feel like. I feel like this may be what you're setting up here in part is that like this is a movie with kind of an obvious like uh, recurring motif that is probably the most famous scene in the movie uh, or one of them anyway. Uh, but I think my favorite is um, when Mike 
shortly after Mike gets back from Vietnam and is out hunting and misses the deer mm-hmm. or is unable to shoot the deer, whichever one it is, yeah. uh, A, the sassy look that the deer gives always makes me Love laugh. That. Love Just that. that little like backward glance after the shot misses is <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, but I don't think I... Part of it's the nature of it all, like the the, the camera work of it all, mm-hmm. and um, this is a sound with really good sound production. I think, yes, um, I agree. like I think it's doing a lot across the movie and the way after he misses and he sits down on the bank of the river, um, just a gorgeous area wherever he is. Mm-hmm. But the way the sounds of the waterfall and just kind of nature swell up and overtake everything. Um, like, I just, I, like, that's always just a really elegant scene to me. Um, and, you know, obviously metaphorical, but, like, I just think it's beautifully shot. The sound is great there. Um, and I just like it. Like, I, I think it's a really cool little moment in the movie. So I think that's my favorite, or, like, the standout for me. Okay, so that one, that one is also fairly high on my list. Like, basically everything that happens um, on hunting trips with... With that gang, um, but especially watching De Niro sort of like bounce around in the mountains, like that—that that really is beautiful country. And um, I do like his scenes with the deer, um, whichever deer it is that he's after. Um, and of course, it gets to his his uh, repeated motif, like you were saying, of that one shot—you only take one shot for it. Um, so, are there other ones that? that appeal to you other ones that like have like strong memorable images for you besides that one though that one ranks pretty highly for me too i'd say one like when you put it there's just the strong imagery of it all right nikki shooting himself um like getting back to the the gambling den and uh mm-hmm. like nick just utterly wasted away at this point and like whereas the one shot has been missing so many times throughout this, like this recurring Russian roulette thing, um, right? This is the last shot. Um, and it, it hits here and again, great, like sound mixing there. Just how, uh, De Niro, I, it's this weird moment where it like, just feels like he's utterly overacting, but it like, that makes it genuine as, as you, as you watch it long mm-hmm. enough. Like it's, it's a cool little acting moment. Um, but like that just gets lost in the, uh, in the, just the noise of the crowd in this den, and you know like they're just going to be thrown out in a second, and like everything will move on. Um, so I just in terms of strong imagery, like that one obviously stands out. I don't, you know, it's not my favorite necessarily, but like I, I think it, it is one that has to be mentioned, um, right? And it, it's a big moment in the film, but. I think just seeing how much of a husk Nick is at that point, like that, that's always jarring. So my basic thesis about this movie is one that I've been coming to over the course of years. Um, and I, I didn't really want to rewatch this one, but I got a day off that I didn't expect because the Braves won the world series, which look, I hate the Braves, but if they're going to get me a day off of work, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> so like, I got a day off for that shit. I know, I know. It's because the the county I work in just followed the the lead of all the other ones. So I was like, I, when the Nats won, that was really vexing for me. I'm just like, I hate it when the NL East teams all win the World Series. But then when the Braves did it and I got a day off, I'm like, at least it's better than the Nationals doing it because that that did not garner me any surprise time off from work. 
So I had more time than I thought I was going to. Um, and I'm like, what the heck? This is a movie I've seen three or four times before. Um, it's one that I watch, I would say, once every few years just to, like, check in on it again, basically. And this time around, my thesis going in has has been for a few years now this idea of this is a movie that kind of annoys me because it's got that very strong look at what Vietnam did to our boys, but never really gets into, did you know how many bombs we happened to drop on Vietnam territory? Like, it sort of, it falls short of a coming home or um, or a born on the 4th of July or, or even platoon in, in sort of recognizing what happens to the Vietnamese. And, and the reason why I even bring it up is because the Vietnamese in this movie are so villainous, are just so overwhelmingly bad people, um, which is whatever. Like, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on the POW situation in the Vietnam War, but it's it's a movie that's sort of one-sided on that, and that annoyed me for a while. And this time it was definitely like a tertiary consideration for me, um, because my new thesis is that this movie would have been better if they had just cut every scene that's set in Vietnam. That That is my new The Deer Hunter take, is that everything about this movie that I like, everything about this movie that I think is really powerful, works just as well if you don't see anything that happens in Vietnam, which I think is, is sort of a testament to to the actors as much as anything else. Um, I think that this has a just, I mean, you don't have to be a genius to look at Robert De Niro, Christopher Walken and Meryl Streep and say, wow, what a great cast this one has. But like this one has, has really terrific performances and the performances are most nuanced and most charismatic and most interesting when they're in Pennsylvania and not when they're in Vietnam. And all of the trauma that these people have I've never felt like it was all that heightened by what's happening in Vietnam. And the the scene that you mentioned at the end where Nick finally does blow his head off during the, the Russian roulette game, that particular scene works not because of the people around it, I don't think, but it's because of the look that De Niro has. So when you were saying the overacting thing, I'm like, yes, it's that histrionic, over-the-top look of affection that he gives to Nick at the end, because that's, like, the true love of his life there. Like, that relationship between him and Nick and Nick and Linda and Linda and Michael, that triangle, which is which is not a romantic triangle necessarily, even though there's plenty of, like, sex in there, but, like, the idea of these are the three people in this town who get each other, and no one else quite gets them, and and they don't quite understand anybody else. There's sort of a, an impatience with the other people. Um, that's the thing that is so powerful. And I think if you were to say it needs De Niro to return to Vietnam, I would get that. But I don't, on the whole, I really just don't think those scenes add as much as the beginning, the steel mail sequences, the, the wedding and wedding reception which we will talk about because I'm a psycho and the um even the even the stuff where where you watch 
Mike return home, refused to go to his party, visit um, visit Stephen in the veterans hospital. Like all of those, all of those work pretty well, even though. Uh, speaking of monsters, all of those work pretty well, even though. I mean, you could you could cut the actual the actual scenes of of Stephen in the water dungeon out. And it would still make sense that he came home without legs. Like I think, I I think that's almost gratuitous. So this is my this is my my new take on this. Ask me again in three or four years, and I might have a totally brand new one. Um, but I do I do think it's worth saying that the first time around with this movie, it was a really really profound experience for me. I just thought it was it was really staggering. I didn't know a lot about it going in. Um, and it ends, of course, with that that God bless America sing along plus freeze frame, which depending on how you read it is either so so ironic and 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 caustic or might be sort of naively patriotic. And I think either one of those endings is really potent. Obviously, I'm I'm. Pre, um, partial to the idea that it's meant to be ironic and caustic because why wouldn't it be? But that's that's something that that definitely stands out. And I remember the first time I watched it, I was just I was just really broken up by it. I like the way you say that. Yeah, it could be interesting either way. But I just like <clears throat> I can't fathom that not being caustic. Like that's actually I think my second favorite moment. Um, I had a feeling your thesis was going to go somewhere along, like, in that category anyway, so I figured, why not jump into it? Um, I, I, like, I think you're right, though. Um, I don't disagree at all. Um, I think, yeah, the going back to see Nick, I think that works, um, because, like, that's also kind of a hyper-local thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, I'm fine with that in there, but, yeah, I agree that, like... The the more interesting stuff, as as is always the case, happens in Pennsylvania. Um, but yeah, that God bless America scene, that one really stands out to me. Um, you know, seeing Stephen um, uh, in the hospital, like that's that's a moment that like just sort of lives in my brain for like more striking reasons. Um, but I would say like, yeah, I think I think this. Him missing the deer is probably my top scene. Um, I do really like the God Bless America thing. I, I love the steel mill, st steel mill stuff. Um, and I like just the little things, like when when Mike's walking around with um, Stanley and John, or whichever one the other one is, um, like is right after he's walking around with Linda a bit after returning home. And this is another moment, like nothing really particular is happening there, but just kind of the industrial thrum behind that whole scene. Um, like just, there's a, like, there's a grayness to it, which is fitting for factory towns in, in Western Pennsylvania. Um, and there's that just like industrial hum to the whole thing. And like, it's this vaguely ominous and threatening thing. And they're just having like casual conversation. They're meeting people on the street. Like nothing major is happening there, but there is that, um, just that sort of undercurrent of danger always. Um, and so like little moments like that, I always really like watching this movie. Yeah. So for me, the, 
the thing about this movie that really is great is the first hour or so. Um, and in case this has not come up, this is a this is a three hour movie. So saying the first hour or so is is a little bit more specific than usual. Um, but this is this is to me the great gift that Michael Cimino has, and we've talked about Heaven's Gate on the podcast before. And I I love Heaven's Gate, and I love the way that that movie really gives you just through like peripheral parenthetical kind of glances gives you such a strong sense of what the people in a place are like and what a community looks like. And not in like a corny, like, Oh, we're like, you know, we're the community and we all come together, yada, yada, whatever. It's, it's more about, it's more about this idea of they all have a character of some kind and whether that character is positive or negative, good or bad, whether that's something which they should be, which they should be, invested in or if it's something which they shouldn't be sort of like my cat should not be interested in this bag of Doritos like there are all sorts of there are all sorts of things in Shimino movies that just come out so clearly and so strongly so the thing that that he's so good at this idea of of finding the little bits of what a community's like and then expanding on it which is why that roller skating scene that everyone hates in Heaven's Gate is so perfect, because you get to understand what all of those people are like so perfectly. Um, people who we don't even know that well, or don't know all that well yet, but then over the course of the film, we come to know them, and they make more sense because of that scene, um, how they act in that larger group. And I love watching the little old ladies all talking together in, in this little town. Um, I love the way that you get the sense that none of these guys have ever really thought about leaving home except to fight in foreign wars. Like, there's there's no there's no question that these people have been brought up their whole lives to think, I'm going to go to high school here, I'm going to play football here, and then I'm going to work in the steel mill here and go to the bar that that John owns, and that's, that's going to be my whole life. And, you know, except for the occasional hunting trip, like, it seems like everyone's more or less content with that, which I just, I just find it all like really, really interesting. And you get that sense watching this early part and seeing people out on the streets together and, and watching people take showers before they go home, uh, from their mill shift or even the, the wedding itself, which to me is like just perfect. Like that's a, that's a brilliant, brilliant piece of filmmaking. Uh, the entire wedding plus the wedding reception sequence. And I've sort of said this a few times, but there are not that many movies that I have the same theme for now that I had, you know, when I started working on this when we when we began. But this one has basically the same theme. Um, and our theme this week is Wedding Bells, because the best part of this movie... The reason this movie is as good as it is still, despite having what I think of as a lot of fat on it, um, is the wedding reception that gets to gets to the heart of who all these different people are and does so without big monologues, which does so without anything, I mean, I'm saying this sort of tongue-in-cheek, but without like a big Oscar moment for these people in the first third of the movie you are instead getting to know them better through these smaller interactions. So watching the way at the wedding reception that Michael just sort of stares at Linda, um, the way that she dances with everybody, that all of the different guys in their group 
all sort of dance with everybody. The way that Stan, who is being played by John Cazale in his um, in his last film role, uh, the way that he gets really, really offended when his girlfriend gets cut in on by the the band leader, who turns out to be the guy later in the movie who like runs the market, which I think is a great touch. Um, and then he hits her later, like that shows you everything you need to know about that guy before more important scenes happen. Um, it has the wonderful Russian music. Um, not all of it would make sense. Like I've, I've sort of done a little bit of research on this and in one of the songs um, that everyone sings as the wedding party leaves because it's sort of a wedding reception, but it's also a farewell party for, for Nick and Steven and, and Mike. Um, the song they sing there is Kachusha, which is this like famous Red Army song. And if these people are immigrants to to America, they probably weren't Reds, or at least they wouldn't have been around when the Reds were around. So like it seems like sort of a weird thing, but like they have that, and they have Korobaniki, which of course is the Tetris song. So I love that that's in here. <laughs> like the first time. The first time I watched this movie, I'm like, hey, I know this song. Where do I know this song from? And it turned out I knew exactly where I knew the song from. But, like, it has... Also very Russian. Highly Russian. Highly Russian. Like, I, I love that the Russian Orthodox church service is so lovingly detailed. Um, I, I love the building. I don't... I think that's in Ohio. I don't remember offhand, but I think that's in Ohio. Uh, the actual church that they filmed, filmed that in. That's it. That one's in Cleveland, which, boo, but that's where it is. I mean, it, it, it definitely fits, which I like. Um, I love the I love the implication that these people don't have all that much and, and have this sort of, like, minor town and this, you know, limited income, but that they have this beautiful church, um, which, which seems very likely to me in an interesting way. Um, I love the the way that you can sort of watch the little pockets of people um, and the way that they interact with each other, the way that the parents are kind of distant from everyone else at the wedding. Uh, I love the walk-in stuff at this at the wedding reception because walk-in, for one thing, is such a wonderful dancer, um, which is something we keep coming back to on here, but he's such a good dancer, and you can sort of see how light on his feet he is and how, how good he is. Um, but there's also that great, that great little part in the, in the reception where he like puts down a bottle on the floor and like runs up to it. Like he's going to jump over it and then stops and does that three or four times. And then finally does this like little jump over it and everybody goes nuts for it. Like it's, it's such a charismatic moment. It lets you know what kind of guy Nick is like, Nick is the, is the glue. Like Nick is the kind of person who he can do something dumb. He can do something dumb and make it truly endearing. And that's what makes it so so heartbreaking to lose him, is because you get to watch this particular joyful, goofy kind of guy lose his soul. And that's, like, the reason why watching him zonked out on, on heroin and then shooting himself in the head hurts so much is not because this is like, oh, what a nice American boy this was, but because he could hold all of these other people in thrall at a wedding reception by pretending that he couldn't get himself up to jump over a bottle. Like, that's the that's the joy of it. 
So for me, that's the great thing about about this movie is the the wedding reception. Um, and I know people complain about it being too long and whatever. Like, no, no, this is this is the reason this movie is good. Um, I only have one other set of thoughts on the Deer Hunter, which I'm gonna try to keep brief. But anything on on this that you wanted to add? Um, I don't think so. Like, I'm, I am always taken by the the small moments in the movie, as it were. What you're saying about like the community building. Um, you know, this is definitely true in other states as well. I'm not trying to argue that, but like, you know, this is small town Pennsylvania, <laughs> especially the like factory towns. Um, so like, it, it, it does feel true to that. And like, you know, these are people like they're of a type that like you can easily recognize. Um, but they're all given these little like moments to actually build out their character. Um, and I think you're right, but like, that's what makes this kind of special. That it's not just, oh, the vet, like lost, you know, all, all hope or will or whatever, but like, no, these are, these are people with like important relationships and quirks and like, we've come to know them and that's why it becomes even more, um, heart wrenching at the end. So my, my one final thought is just an Oscar thought. And of course the Oscars are pointless, but the... My my favorite, and I think the I think the reason I like it so much is because it is the most interesting best picture race in Oscar history is between The Deer Hunter and Coming Home, which both came out in 1978. And of course, both deal with virtually the same topic, which is Coming Home. Um, that this is this great movie, uh, The Deer Hunter is when it is focused on this idea of home, that if it's going to matter so much to come home, then the place you go home to has to have some meaning, and of course it does, thanks to that wonderful first hour. Um, and if, and I think coming home is the better movie. I don't think it's that close, necessarily, but obviously Oscar voters felt differently because it because it won best... it uh, because Deer Hunter won Best Picture and Coming Home didn't. But it is just such an interesting moment like you get you get a really good oscar race every five six seven years like you get one that's like really tight and there's a lot of um juxtaposition between between the two movies but i don't think we'll ever have one quite this neat again um and which also allows for such a stark division in terms of like politics because the deer hunter is definitely a a movie which appeals more to conservative minded folks i think and um I mean, all you got to say about coming home is that it has Jane Fonda and is directed by Hal Ashby. Like you, you kind of know where that one's going when it's about the Vietnam War. So it's it's very interesting to to see that as as a dividing line in Hollywood and and in terms of what viewers wanted. It just stands out to me, and I'm bringing this up now because it sounds like that would be a decile topic, but I know it's not going to be. Um, it's a uh... It's a fun best actor race that year too. <laughs> who are the other who are the other nominees? I guess you have that up. Yeah, so well De Niro was nominated. Uh, Lawrence Olivier was nominated for The Boys from Brazil. Right. Uh, Warren Beatty nominated for Heaven Can Wait, which I'm pretty sure we talked about on an old episode. No, we talked about We talked about Heaven Can Wait, not about Heaven Can Wait. But that is a very interesting performance in that movie. 
Right on. Uh, Gary Busey was nominated for the Buddy Holly story. Right. Yes. And John Voigt won for Coming Home. <laughs> and I did that, that's, that's just an interesting collection of people. <laughs> yeah, je- definitely the, um, the full spectrum from Gary Busey to Lawrence Olivier definitely tells you. <laughs> Tells you something. I did not remember that Olivier was nominated for Boys from Brazil. What a what a bonkers movie. Okay, so our our theme this week is wedding bill bells, a topic that has absolutely nothing to do with clones of Hitler. And this idea of wedding bells, I, I try not to do movies that are too too much um, like the original original um, AFI movie. I try to to separate it a little. And I thought about this one, and for The Deer Hunter, which is like this classic kind of dad movie, um, and in which the wedding is, is, as I think, the most important part of the movie, but obviously is not the most important part of the movie to, to you know, most sane humans. Um, the, the films that I've chosen are actually about weddings in some sense. And more about family than community, um, and the weddings are very much at the center of of the actual story. They are also different from the Deer Hunter in that the movies that I've got up are either co-written or primarily written by women. Um, and of course, the Deer Hunter is this very this very masculinized movie. I think very much about that male bonding thing. Um, have <laughs> however you want to put that. And these movies are very much focused on on reading men through the lens of women, which I think which I think is sort of an interesting an interesting angle that the deer hunter probably could have gone into more if it had chosen to, but it, it, it doesn't have time, frankly. So these are these are a little bit different in that way as well. But I'm sort of burying the lead here because one of the movies that is up for it is The Birdcage, uh, the Mike Nichols adaptation of La Cage aux Faux, um, which is a French movie that I can't believe they got away with showing me in French 3. But they, I also am doing a, a first time and hopefully the last time. Matt's going to have two choices to make in this episode because he is going to get to choose which father of the bride gets to go up against the birdcage? So we're going to do this first. Um, I just I just thought, why not? You know, <laughs> like, I, I, I really like both both iterations of this movie. Um, they're they're two classics for a reason. I figure we may as we may as well just go for it. So father of the bride, no matter how you slice it, is based on a um is based on a novel by Edward Streeter uh, of the same name, which is basically just about what if you took dad and told him that people actually pay a lot of money for weddings now. So in 1950, Vincente Minnelli does a version which stars Spencer Tracy as dad, Joan Bennett as mom, and Elizabeth Taylor as bride. And then in 1991, uh, there is the Charles Shire version, which... um, which has Steve Martin as dad, Diane Keaton as mom, and Kimberly Williams as as bride. Three interesting groups of people, for <laughs> for better or worse. Um, and I wanted to just start from from there to sort of say these are very similar, and that you have just a nice middle class family who wakes up one morning. Basically, their daughter comes home, tells them that she's 
that she's engaged now and that she wants to get married soon and the father's plans for a private and quiet wedding quickly, quickly go off the rails and it turns into a, an enormous to-do um, as, as father starts to realize, you know, he's, he's resisting the amount of money he has to spend and he's resisting the idea of his daughter getting married even a little bit, but above all, it means that he has to understand himself as no longer the most important man in his little girl's life, which is the truly difficult thing for him to overcome. Once he, once he does, the wedding goes on and everybody goes home happy. This is the basic premise of Father of the Bride. Um, I assume you've seen at least one of these. The second one. Yeah, grew up with the second one. The first one is one that I, I watched a few years ago, and I was like, oh, this is different enough. It, it genuinely is different. It feels different. Um, so that one's written by a married couple. They're actually both written by a married couple, which I think is kind of a fun, a fun twist. Um... The 51 is written by Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett, who did a lot of movies together. Uh, they broke out with The Thin Man, uh, the classic William Powell Myrna Loy feature. Um, they also are the people who, with Frank Capra, adapted It's a Wonderful Life. So they are, they are a talented pair. Um, and I think in the 1951, what it comes down to is more about is more about the parents and especially this idea of how men are so sweet and like it comes down to women to basically hold hold down the fort and keep everything together and if it were not for them you would see the men totally fly off the handle and make no sense which if you look back at at the thin man or if you look back at um it's a wonderful life or look forward to seven brides for seven brothers which they also co-wrote um I mean, that's, that's kind of what it comes down to, is you have, you have these men who are kind of dreamers and, and idealistic and a little, a little kooky in their own ways, um, and of course played by huge icons, which, which is not nothing. Um, but you also have women at their side who just make more sense. Like, if you watch It's a Wonderful Life, Donna Reed makes more sense than Jimmy Stewart makes through most of that movie. And it comes down to her to save the day. You watch Myrna Loy in those Thin Man movies, and she just kind of makes more sense than William Powell. And the same thing is true in Father of the Bride 1950, where Joan Bennett just makes more sense than Spencer Tracy. Um, it is it is very much about Tracy, though. It's a very funny movie because of how many different dumb things they get Tracy to do. So... One of, there are just a couple scenes that I really do love from this. One of them is Spencer Tracy is hosting an engagement party. His name is Stanley Banks in this one. They keep the Banks moniker, which I think is kind of funny. Um, but Stanley is, is hosting the engagement party, and he says, we were hosting this engagement party to tell everyone that our daughter was getting married, even though they all already knew, which sort of speaks to some of the silliness of, of the pageantry of it, but also it's just very funny because of how Tracy does it. This is one of his fun, wry performances. Um, so he decides he has, like, one job to do <laughs> at this party, which is 
which is to make drinks. So in his efficient mind, he's like, everyone drinks martinis at these. I'm just going to make a couple pitchers of martinis and we're going to go from there. And before he knows it, he's stuck tending bar through the entire engagement party, does not get out of the kitchen once because try as he might, he cannot convince a living soul to take a martini from him. All he can do is just field orders for old fashions and like bourbon and soda. <laughs> just like you can just see his like his soul leaving his body the more people ask for drinks that he cannot provide them. Which I think is just a really beautiful a beautiful little comedic scene which gets at the point of the entire movie, which is a man whose soul is leaving his body as he cannot control anything that happens. Um, the one thing about this movie that I think makes it really special on its own is that it has a dream sequence, which I can only describe as being, like, surrealistic, like, truly kind of a Dolly-esque kind, of, um, kind of dream where... Before the wedding, he has this dream of himself trying to walk down the aisle and being sucked into it. And there's this set which they've which they've made, which actually sort of like bounces a little bit and allows him to get sucked down in. Like he put he's like crawling on his hands and knees and getting like pulled into the floor. Which is a very it was deeply unexpected. <laughs> like, I was just like, this didn't happen to Steve Martin. But that's that's the the scene which I think is so stylish and so, like, just such a good moment of, like, terror. The abject terror that, that precedes it. Um, if this gets picked, I'll say more about it. But that's my, my basic pitch for, for Father of the Bride 1950. It is, again, sort of the story about how, how sweet men are, how good it is for them to have wives who make sense. And Joan Bennett just is so practical and so smart in this movie. Um, and about watching Spencer Tracy suffer many indignities is basically the, the, the goal here. But watching Spencer Tracy suffer indignities is, is usually a pretty good recipe for success. The 91 um, Father of the Bride is, is uh, co-written by Charles Shire and Nancy Myers, who were married at the time. And if this ever appeared to be a Nancy Myers movie to you, but you were like, oh, it's not directed by her. Well, you know, it's a Nancy Myers movie. You can look at it and you can tell. Um, and George has most of the same problems that Stan has. Um, George is a little horrified by how much the wedding costs. He is, of course, not happy about losing his little girl. I think the relationship between father and daughter definitely gets played up more in the 91 than in the 50. Um, it's not that, it's not that there isn't a lot of chemistry between Tracy and Taylor. Um, I actually, like, I think they do a really nice job of playing off each other. There are just fewer scenes between them than there are between Steve Martin and Kimberly Williams. So that's one thing that I think really sets this one apart from the original. Another thing is that it's willing to pass out the jokes to other people. So the joke, there's a joke in the 51 where they go see a wedding planner, uh, a Mr. Masula, played by Leo G. Carroll, who is showing them all of these things that you can get at your wedding and how expensive it all is. And, and the funny part about it is not Carroll. The funny part about it is the Banks is... Um, sort of looking at everything and just be like, oh, nope, nope, we weren't really thinking that until you're sort of just like, 
well, why did they see this wedding planner? Like, that's the joke. The joke is, why did they see this wedding planner? And then there's, in the 91, there's Martin Short, who is playing Franck, who is one of the most quoted people at the dinner table where, where I lived growing up. Um, we spoke frequently about Kex and Waddings. And, like, the joke in that one is that the people who prop up the industrial wedding complex are insane. And that's like, that's basically what that one comes down to, where a lot of the humor in the 91 version is less about, look at this silly man trying to plan a wedding, at least as much of it is about, it is absolutely hog wild that you can support Frank and Howard Weinstein, who is played, of course, by B.D. Wong, and... <laughs> Are you Frank? No, I wish. Is <laughs> one of my one of my favorite lines from that. But just the fact that that weddings are made up of these people who are clearly insane and who the people other than Steve Martin can't like what I love about it is Diane Keaton and Kimberly Williams both look at Frank and they're like, "Oh, look at how fun this guy is." And only Steve Martin can recognize that Martin Short is playing a crazy man, which is which is sort of perfect. But that's, like, the, the version of marriage in front of them. So, unless you have questions, the quick spiel here is you have a choice between the Vincente Minnelli 1950 father of the bride with Spencer Tracy or the Charles Shire 1991 uh, with, with Steve Martin. Um, oh, these are close. Like, <clears throat> I'd be interested in either of them. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick one of them for probably a weird reason um tim approves let's go with the 91 version because okay. i don't know what other chance we're gonna get to talk about steve martin or martin short or, or bd long or like half the other people in this one so like i don't know for variety let's go with that one all right so this particular one i'm 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 happy you picked this i like both of these a lot but i do have sort of a personal a personal connection, personal vibe with, with this one, just because I did grow up with it so much. Um, it does have, it does have the crazy that sort of carries over. So I think, I think that scene where he's at the grocery store, which is so tremendous. The, the hot dog scene is another, like, I think that got quoted at the dinner table even more than, than Frank did. Like, anytime we had hot dogs or hamburgers, it came up somehow. But, like, that particular sequence where he says that the big shot at the Wiener Company got together with the big shot at the Bun Company, and you have to pay for 12 buns, but you only get eight hot dogs, and, like, there's a system, there's a cabal of some kind um i just i just love the the level of insanity that he is brought to until he is as crazy as as frank and howard are um it, you can just see it wearing away at him until until finally he says george banks is saying no and then the poor guy at the grocery store says who's george banks <laughs> and steve martin says me, which is just this like this beautiful lunatic situation where he eventually gets thrown into the clink for a minute for his 
for his bad conduct. But it's like, it's such a wonderful distillation of this normal guy who at the beginning of this movie has his normal house and his normal life and is somehow managing to keep a sneaker business going in California and has two nice kids and is just pleased as punch with everything. And by the fact of a wedding, which is supposed to be this happy kind of thing, is is reduced to yelling at people in the supermarket about the difference between the number of hot dogs and the number of hot dog buns. Just, it's it's really a wonderful come down to witness, even though I, I don't, like, I don't think the movie is actually structured to make this the climactic scene, but maybe it is. <laughs> like, maybe this is the the purest distillation of, of what George Banks becomes. I mean, it is, like, structurally an important moment, because it's when he has to stop, <laughs> like, doing everything himself. Um. So I think I do think it's important there. I also think, man, I empathize. It's a it's a hell of a moment when you realize the the shady cabals that uh, stand behind all of our uh, consumption choices. Um, I mean, he's right. <laughs> like, there's no reason it should be twelve and eight. Uh, it's a it's it's a hell of a jarring moment when you hit that. So, you know. I, I, I respect, you know, I haven't, I didn't go to jail when I had that moment, but like, I understand. I'm trying to think of what else to even emphasize here because I really could just, like, Martin Short deserved an Oscar for this. Speaking of Oscars, just like, whatever this performance is, is so perfect. And I'm thinking about, like, I will go talk to Honk. <laughs> we don't want to lose him. He's a genius and we need his mind. And like, it's just like, where did they come up with this? I like, I feel like this really is the difference for me in terms of quality because as much as I do like that there is that scene, the scene with um with the with the bride deciding she's gonna call off the wedding basically over over a misunderstanding with the with the groom, uh, that happens in both of them. And again, I do like the way Tracy and Taylor work together. I think they are a neater fit than you might guess. But, like, there is there is something more realistic and thoughtful about about the Kimberly Williams-Steve Martin relationship. Like, I, I buy them a little bit more. Maybe it's because she's not Elizabeth Taylor. Like, it might not be Liz's fault there. But I do think that the movie is trying to emphasize... Just the pure madness of trying to, like, trying to be a normal person getting married, getting your daughter married. Like, it's one thing if everything costs an arm and a leg. But it really is, it really is something else if you have to go through Frank Egelhofer to try to, to try to, like, get the wedding that your, that your daughter and your wife are, are looking for. Um... I just I just love that so much, and I love how how much crazier he is than Leo G. Carroll. Um, it's like just the right amount of zaniness that makes makes this surreal in its own way, almost as much as Spencer Tracy getting sucked into the church floor becomes too much after a while. But this is sort of the perfect perfect distillation of him, and like I, I mean, if you want to understand Martin Short here's the movie to do it and like get him in the perfect amount and i don't know i think there's something to like 
like you have to go through a certain level of craziness to actually come to like the understanding that they need at the end of the film and then Franck is the perfect vehicle for that like you need that presence in your life <laughs> and as maddening as it is like it it, it it helps in the end I mean in his defense it, it as far as a home wedding goes it, it really is very pretty I think it looks nice it looked like everyone had a great time like more power to Franck and and the way that he he put it together because I think he he obviously knows what he's doing. There's a reason everyone must like him so much. Um, other thoughts about Father of the Bride before we hit the birdcage? I, I don't think so. <clears throat> maybe, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe just that Eugene Levy's hanging around here too before he becomes, like, I guess the next Steve Martin, in a way, like, in terms of casting. Um, so, there's it, a lot of fun people hanging around in this movie. Yeah, it's very interesting to me that the the cast is so full of, like, big names, and then the people who play the kids in this go on to do basically nothing, right? <laughs> like, um, it's funny in, in, um, in this Father of the Bride, you have Kimberly Williams and George Newbern, who I, I don't think Kimberly Williams even stayed in acting. I think she went and did something else. Like, even Kieran Culkin is doing stuff now, but I just I just don't think that either one of them is doing work. And then of course, um, in the nineteen fifty one, not only is it Elizabeth Taylor, but it's it's Don Taylor, who I'm fairly sure has nothing to do with her. But like he was in a number of movies and ended up directing movies. Like he had a nice long career in Hollywood. So like I don't know. That's that's like a weird a weird. Um, disconnect between those two. So Father of the Bride, in either version, and Matt has, again, made his first choice, yay for choosing, um, in either Father of the Bride, there's a sequence where the, where the dad has to, has to meet the in-laws, and, and discovers that the in-laws are ritzier people than he are, or than he is, than he and his wife are, um, and that's something which he doesn't necessarily take too well to. It's something which is also played up way more in the 91 version where, like, George and Nina figure out that the Mackenzies are loaded beyond all reason. And it ends with George, like, skulking around the house looking for a bank book and then having to retrieve it from the swimming pool where he has been chased by the Dobermans. Um, <laughs> just like its own, its own wonderful sequence. I love that too. The, the idea that meeting the in-laws for the first time is a scary thing. It's like part of what, part of what you get in your, in your wedding movie. And that's what the bird cage is all about. Uh, a film from 1996 where, um, Val, Val Goldman, played by Dan Futterman, uh, comes home and tells his dad, Armand, played by Robin Williams, that he's he's getting married. He's going to marry Callista Flockhart. Um, very interesting to see Callista Flockhart in this, uh, playing Barbara Keeley. Uh, so Val and Barbara are going to get married, and he comes home to tell his dad about it. Um, and the reason why this is a potential problem is because his father is gay, 
and is the owner of a drag nightclub which stars um, Val's, essentially his mother, for all intents and purposes. Uh, this is Nathan Lane playing Albert. Um, and Barbara is the daughter of a conservative senator, uh, Kevin Keeley. This is Gene Hackman, who has a slightly ditzy mom, Louise, played by Diane Weist in her, you know, her series of ditzy people. Um, so the, the question is, if they're going to meet the parents, what exactly are they going to do about the, you know, the gay parents of the, of the groom at their daughter's wedding? That particular nightmare is basically what the birdcage is all about. I think you were going to say a thing. Uh, it is something that I will return to later because it's about, uh, Kimberly Williams, but now let's continue on the birdcage, which I will say also has just an amazing cast, <laughs> like two, two well filled out movies here. Um, but between Williams and Lane and, and Hackman and, and, uh, no, uh, East, like just good stuff here. <laughs> yeah. And you've got, you've got Christine. Baranski in that small role as Val's literal, like, birth mother, and Hank Azaria should not be playing a Guatemalan named Agador, but, oh my gosh, the way that, like, I'm sure you could find, you you could absolutely find someone to do some of the stuff that he does in this, but the, the way that he simply cannot walk when he's wearing shoes is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my entire life. Just like, why why aren't you wearing shoes? I can't walk in shoes. And then, like, it's true. He can't walk in shoes. It's the most incredible thing. Um, but those are the basics of The Birdcage, um, a film which, like I said before, is directed by Mike Nichols and written by Elaine May, who are not literally a married couple and were not a married couple, but also, like, come on, they were kind of a married couple in their own way. There is a connection between the two of them, which is deeper than the connection between many married couples. Um, and May writes the the screenplay for this, which is just, oh my gosh, it is just screamingly funny all the way through. It is one of those movies where Robin Williams plays the straight man, which sounds ridiculous, but I generally do like movies where Williams is put in that role a little bit. Not because, not because it's like so out of his ability to do, because he was such a wonderful actor and he was really good at playing whoever, like he didn't have to be, he didn't have to be the funny man, but it also makes the parts in the movie where he just does Robin Williams stuff even better. Um, like I think my, my absolute favorite sequence in this, and maybe this is going to jettison its chances, but it has nothing to do with the wedding. It has absolutely everything to do with Armand and Albert running their their nightclub together, and they are auditioning. It's I don't think it's not an audition. It's like they're they're rehearsing. Yeah, they're rehearsing um, with a with a uh, stud named Celsius, and it's just filled with all of these incredible one-liners. It's like Elaine May has been waiting all her life to write this scene. Um, Albert is freaking out because because Celsius is chewing gum, and Celsius says, chewing gum helps me think, and Albert yells, sweetie, you're wasting your gum, which is, like, one of the snappiest, best comebacks in the history of the world. But it also has this incredible, 
incredible moment where Robin Williams stops playing Armand and just starts doing a Robin Williams thing, <laughs> where he is trying to demonstrate different styles of dance, um, and is talking about, like, what Martha Graham would do, or what Twilight would do, or what Bob Fosse would do, and all of them are not only hilarious, but also exactly what those people would have done in that situation. It's like one of the great 30 seconds uh, worth of history of dance that you can you can possibly see. Anyway, that's like my favorite part of the movie that has nothing to do with what we're talking about here. But my favorite part of the movie that has everything to do with what we're talking about here is that what makes the movie interesting is that it's it's kind of a marriage movie, but it's also kind of a movie about immigrants in its own interesting kind of way. So it's like in the in the film, you have these two people in the Keeleys who are these sort of staunch defenders of marriage and of a traditional life. And of course the film kind of subverts that because the other half of Senator Keeley's um movement is this senator who was found dead in bed with an underage black prostitute which his you know his white constituents are not going to think very highly of you know it's not a good combination for uh conservative red red america exactly so he's trying to fend off this one scandal in his own in his own world but he and he and his wife represent the sort of grounded powerful conservative, native, like, hetero version of marriage. And on the other side of it, you have this very immigrant set of married people in Armand and Albert, who, on one hand, because they are like immigrants to it, they get to do things differently. They get to approach marriage differently. Their marriage works differently <laughs> than the Keeley's marriage works. And it works very differently than the marriage that Val and Barbara would have, presumably. Um, but also it doesn't mean that they aren't trying to fit in with what that marriage model is. Like they are trying to maintain this monogamous relationship together. Um, and the two of them definitely fill like the, the man and woman roles in this sort of highly stylized, highly ridiculous version of, of stereotypical marriage. There's that one line in there where, they're talking about nurturing and Armand says that he was sort of like a mother, but Albert is practically a breast, um, which is just a, another tremendous flourish from Elaine May. Um, but like, that's essentially like the kind of thing that it is where one of them identifies as the man in the, in the relationship. And the other one emphatically, um, identifies as the woman, um, and, gosh, I'm trying to find the exact line, but Albert and Armand are arguing at one point, and Albert says, don't give me that tone, that sarcastic, contemptuous tone that means you know everything because you're a man, and I know nothing because I'm a woman. And Armand says, you're not a woman. And Albert says, oh, you bastard. Like, there's this, this constant back and forth of one of them really does identify as the husband, and the other one identifies as the wife. And when they ultimately do the drag act, which is this unhinged dinner in the in the final act, where 
Albert in drag because that's his thing. He he has a drag persona, Starina, who is the centerpiece of of the nightclub. Um, gets into Middle America drag, and and plays Val's mom, which he is. Um, and of course, plays Val's mom to the hilt. And Senator Keeley adores her. Just thinks that she's the most wonderful woman. Um, but like that's that's something that the film is is showing they can play the roles, but they can also sort of subvert them or, or play with them. But there's another thing about their own marriage which is so interesting because it is 1996 and they don't have provisions in the law for for gay marriage. And so the greatest sign of devotion that they can give each other is this um, this uh, willingness to be buried with one another. And I think there, there's this gorgeous scene. I've written about it a few times now. But, like, there's a gorgeous scene um, where Armand is, like, chasing down Albert because they've been, like, thinking, like, how are we going to handle this dinner? And eventually Armand is just like, we have to get him out of the house. And Albert is, like, runs in on that and is really offended. So he's like, I'm going to run off. Um, and he catches him at the bus stop, basically, and says, I have this great place. I've got this great plot like where I intended to get buried and you've got a plot in a really crappy place. Um, but you know what? I, I want to be where you are. So I would get buried with you. I would leave my beautiful plot and go to your crappy one. Cause I don't want to miss out on any of your jokes. And it's this really lovely scene, but it's also reminiscent of the old, um, the old Irish marriage proposal which is riffed on in The Rising of the Moon, which is a John Ford that even I would not consider using for subtitles. But there's this one line in there where somebody says, as a proposal of marriage, how would you like to be buried with my people? And that has its own like really great immigrant shine on it. Um, so that's something, something that comes to mind for me. It is something that, they're, that they do in here, which before we even get to like the the in-law dinner kind of shows that it does have this, this perspective on marriage, which is more than just, this is something that young people do when they're in love. Uh, I was going to get to the dinner itself and how truly insane it is, but any other thoughts about that stuff before we move on? I just, like, you talked about this, but it's just consistently amazing how, like, like, right, for who Robin Williams is, and again, he can play the straight role very, very well, but, like, if you just look at him and Nathan Lane together, you kind of know, like, oh, yeah, it had to be this way. And, like, that just, that just, I don't know, tickles me and confounds me all at the same time. Every time I, I see images from this movie, it's like, oh, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense, but, like, it's Robin Williams who can just do 30 seconds of dance whenever you need him to. <laughs> So the actual dinner, um, it starts off with, essentially, the reason that the dinner is stressful at all is because the kids have lied to the Keelys. Um, Barbara has told her parents that Armand is a cultural attaché to Greece. Um, and then Val, who... This movie has gotten some, some pushback in... I would say like the past decade or so. And and part of it, I think, you'll see some people who say that this like is 
unfairly playing to gay stereotypes, which I get. I don't necessarily, and it's like not my place to say, but like, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it's a little more nuanced than people are giving it credit for, even though just because Nathan Lane is playing this over the top stereotype doesn't mean that it's not providing nuance in other ways. And, and that's, again, that's something I've, I've written about before. Um, but the, the other thing that people talk about is just how much of a little shit, I don't say curse words on here a lot, but like he is just a little shit, uh, that Val is, who's like going to his dad and going to the, the people who raised him and basically saying, could you pretend to be fundamentally different for these other people? I don't know. Um, and that, that is a thing which makes this dinner as funny as it is to watch people try to prepare for it, and we are absolutely going to talk about it. As funny as that is, it is also it is also really, really dispiriting to watch. And of course, it, come, it comes around in the end, because Armand says at one point that he doesn't want to pretend for these people, you know, that he has been closeted for other people before, and he doesn't intend to do so now. Um, but he still goes along with his son for a while and trying to pretend that he is a, he's a straight guy. And that's the other thing that people talk about, but we do need to discuss how they prepare the, the, the apartment (laughs) above the nightclub, um, that Armand is, is trying to make look less like a guy who owns a gay nightclub owns it. And there's this one moment where, someone finds a playboy in the bathroom and <laughs> like who put a playboy in the bathroom and Agador play who is the Hank Azaria character is like, that's what I thought they read. And Val is like, don't add just subtract, which is at, at one point just like, it's an incredibly funny series of things that happen to try to get this like pared down. And in the end it becomes like, this funereal kind of environment because straight people just love black, apparently. What was the name of the place in Portland where we went to that had the the, the Jesus, the crucifix above the jukebox? You remember this, right? Oh, yeah, jukebox Jesus. Um, I don't remember the name of the place, but I'm going to figure it out as I uh, Google real quick. But if you want to, you know, talk about... Oh, the Roxy. That's what it was. Roxy. It's... <laughs> It's reminiscent of that. Like, it looks like that in this flat at at one point because of the crucifix that they've got lying around. Um, And the dinner just, like, there's the farce element in that it just goes so badly. Like, Armand has charged Agador to make make food for this, and at one point Val is like, can you cook? And Agador says, your father certainly seems to think so, (laughs) which is great. And then there's this other, like, bit where, um, where Armand is asking Agador what he's made, um, and Agador says, it's Guatemalan peasant soup. (laughs) And Armand says, what's Guatemalan peasant soup? And Agador says, I don't know, I made it up! (laughs) And, like, the goal was to have that is the main course, but of course everyone is expecting a soup course and then a main course, so everyone's freaking out about that. They're freaking out because Albert is, like, in hiding and then shows up in this drag outfit supposed to be Val's mother, 
But then Christine Baranski actually shows up, and she really is Val's mother, but she's been in traffic, and, like, it's just a, a ridiculous mishmash of everything kind of going wrong, and all of it just being at the absolute edge of disaster, longer than you think it would be possible to keep this up. And I think this is the Mike Nichols influence, is that he really is so good, even in even in the dramas, like... Say what you will about who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, and, like, I know you're not the person who's gonna say stuff, that's me. But, like, that's a movie that keeps the foot on the pedal just longer than you think should be possible. And The Birdcage is very much like that, just, like, heightening and heightening and heightening all the way through. And eventually when the Keeleys have to escape through the, through the nightclub, that's, like, kind of a its own brilliant thing, um because it forces Senator Keeley to do something which he is not comfortable with. Um, but of course, his wife is just like, I'm as pretty as the guys in here. Why isn't anyone talking to me? Like, there's <laughs> that same, like, sort of wonderfully ditzy energy that goes through it at the same time as this kind of commentary about the bigotry that, the, that someone like Senator Keeley has. That's my basic pitch about The Birdcage, which is a movie, again, less about the actual wedding. We do not see the actual wedding, but which is about the sort of, the inherent awkwardness of saying, we are two families, and the idea of a family is to be this singular unit, like the idealized version of the family is to have, like, these people who go together no matter what regardless of how badly they might fit, like, they are a family, they are one. And then to say, ah, but but our family is now a larger family of things that no longer fit together. And, like, that's the, the running joke at the heart of the movie. Anything else on, on this one? No, I don't think so. I like the multiple, like, senses of marriage that you laid out for this one. Um... Yeah, I don't. I don't think I really have anything else. I, I, two fun movies. Um, and I think that's certainly not unheard of for us. But it's nice to just have two fun movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. It was not that long ago where the happy ending was someone losing his gambling fortune and being forced to start over, and that was clearly the better ending than what happened in the other ones. So, moving on up, we can we can joke. Uh, so the two films this this week um, are trying to replace The Deer Hunter, uh, a film which is ostensibly about the Vietnam War, but at its heart, when it's absolutely at its best, is working with this idea of community. Never done better than when it is doing its wedding and wedding reception, so our theme this week is Wedding Bells. Matt has already chosen Father of the Bride 1991 over Father of the Bride 1950, a film which is looking at marriage from the perspective of, one, it's insane that anyone gets married and lives because it costs so much money and costs so much energy and requires so much work and requires people to stretch themselves so far. And while George Banks is losing all of his money and dealing with someone named Frank and, and sort of losing his relationship with his daughter in some respects because he's being so cheap about it and being so relentless about it that it's starting to, like, 
make her say things like, well, what if we just charge people? Then we can make money on this wedding. Um, there's, there's a lot of that going on, but it's a, it's a movie which also understands that the idea of a wedding for parents is not quite the jaunt that it is for their kids. That if you have to look at it straight on, you're recognizing that, that marriage is something which fundamentally changes your relationship with your children, who you have felt so much possessiveness over, and for good reason. Um, and you sort of have to look at them not as your kids anymore, but as the adults who have moved on from you in a certain kind of way. The Wedding Bells show that in Father of the Bride. Uh, in a film like The Birdcage, um, the Wedding Bells do a lot of things. They remind us of what the, what the parents of the, of the bride and groom were like before. It reminds us that they were children once, too, that they were young people once, um, that Armand and Albert found each other through very different, different um, ways of getting to who they really were, of, of ways of, of understanding themselves. Um, and it's something that we know that Armand has not struggled with necessarily, but that he has hidden before, um, that he can pass in a way that, that Albert simply can't pass, and that they present a sort of radical version of marriage, at least for someone like Val, who is just a little toady. Um, but they, they present this, this version of marriage, which is so fundamentally different, um, than what Val's fiance, Barbara, uh, recognizes from her, her senator father and her very traditional mom. And the way that those families have to confront each other after the, the family with two dads has really been confronting itself, um, that a wedding really makes you look at your own marriage, makes you look at your own family again, to sort of like say, this is a, an important check-in, um, because it is one of those, one of those milestones that, that people have to look at themselves in the mirror and say, how do I want my own children to proceed? Which is kind of something that Armand has to do over the course of the film. But it also recognizes that tradition, um, of the in-laws meeting each other, which is a highly nervous time even when you trust your family uh, and trust the other person's family, <laughs> but, like, it's it's even more unnerving when neither child really trusts their parents and both of them are going to huge lengths to deceive each other, essentially. Um, and, of course, it comes down finally on saying that deception is not the way that this can work, that just as marriage has to be done clear-eyed and with open hearts, you kind of have to accept the the people you're marrying into with those kind of values on your on your own end. So, Father of the Bride 91 or The Birdcage? So, before I pick, I wanted to say about Kimberly Williams, who we were wondering about earlier. Um, she appears to do a lot of, like, made-for-TV Hallmark stuff now, which... Uh... Good for her. I am positive that's lucrative. Mm -hmm. and so happy for her. Mm -hmm. um, but more so, she's married to Brad Paisley. Which I sure. had no inkling of at all. So <laughs> good for her in that regard, too. But that's what Kim Kimberly Williams is up to. Who knew? Not I. Not I. Um, since like 2003, I think. So Whoa. happy wedding bells for them. Okay. Um, Anyway, back to the, the 
decision here. Um, this one's fun and close and kind of difficult. And maybe I'm playing against type and not picking the one that has frank and like careful consideration of the just insanity of the monetary structure of weddings. Um, but I am going to go with the birdcage here. Um, and I think what sets it a little bit over is right. The ways we were talking about community with the deer hunter, um, and the ways you're talking about the birdcage is like, or, or marriage in the birdcage is like this creation of an extended community. And you have to learn how to be truthful in that and like how to, uh, accept it and be clear eyed and open hearted. And, um, so right, marriage as this joining of wildly different peoples and communities um, and, and making this new kind of space. Um, I think that consideration sets it a little bit over, but, but um, you know, I like how both of them are looking at kind of the inherent insanity of marriage as a, like as a process and as a thing. Um, but both of them too, like looking earnestly and sweetly at like the, the uh, relation the relationship stuff behind that, like the emotional, the various emotional tenors of it. Um, but I like that mix of just insanity and, and sweetness in both of them. But I think that extended community thing that, that put me in the birdcage. Yeah, these are, I mean, I would have been happy with either one. And I think it is, it is worth saying that like, it's not like father of the bride 91 didn't win in its own way. It did. It did win a matchup. So good for it. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's just a really interesting movie. It's the kind of movie that I think does show up on TV a lot, and it's it's always easier to discount those. Like Father of the Bride and The Birdcage are both like that. Um, but it is a movie that does have does have so many like pretty little moments, and and whether they're funny or they're really moving. Um, I mean, I didn't even talk about another one of my favorite scenes, which is. Armand trying to teach Albert to seem more straight and says, I know it's a cliche, but John Wayne. And then Nathan Lane does this perfect imitation of the way that John Wayne walks. And Armand is like, no, you can't do it. And, and Albert says, no good. <laughs> and Armand says, no, it's perfect. I just didn't realize John Wayne walked like that. And like, it's an entire movie that's, that's built on that sort of like, misdirection and silliness but it ends up in a really nice place i think um glad to see it here glad that it's that it's through so the original uh afi movie is the deer hunter uh the theme wedding bells and in the end triumphing over not one but two fathers of the bride is is the birdcage uh if you are interested in what we did here and want to hear about downward spirals even worse than serving guatemalan peasant soup and not having another course afterwards, then you can think about Matt's half of this episode, which has the Nine Inch Nails album, The Downward Spiral, and the idea of breaking alt-rock. That is available, among other things, like other back episodes, like links to both of our blogs, like links to his Spotify, my letterbox, like links to just, I don't know, stuff about us, what we do, why we do it, how we got there. Uh, that is all available at subtitlespodcast.com, a place where all of those links are available. And we will see you next time.